Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled The Band of Rescuers. The Word of God makes it plain that we are to rescue the poor, afflicted, and orphaned. Four years ago, I settled down on a tile floor of an Asian orphanage. The smell was nauseating and the physical conditions of these children was heartbreaking. In that moment, though, it was as if God leaned in close and said, If you want to be near me, Ben, you must be near to the least of these. Oh, the joy of joining God's band of rescuers who tirelessly follow the King in seeking and saving the lost. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This particular message uh, has gone through quite a few different titles. My working title throughout the week was What If? with a question mark. Basically indicating this concept of what if we as a body actually banded together and did this. Then I switched to another title, which was uh, Embracing the Inconvenience. Because there's inconvenience out there, and we're, we're a convenient society. Everything about us is looking for the easiest way to accomplish something. Well, by the way, what I'm about to talk to you about is not the easiest way of doing anything. Christianity by nature is not convenient. Christianity invades your selfish existence and turns it on its head. So, Embrace the Inconvenient is another title that got thrown out. Uh, And then I had, what was that one? What was the last one I had, Sandy? Oh, it's on the next slide? Okay, well, let's at least uh, look at the title here. Here, I skip it over, I never even say it. The Band of Rescuers, this is the one I came to, mainly because it sounded like an Ellerslie title. The band of rescuers. By the way, this isn't talking about an individual. This is talking about us as a corporate body. However, we need to allocate and appropriate this message to our individual souls. We respond to this as individuals. We respond to it as married couples. We respond to it as families. And we respond to it as the body of Christ. And we respond to it not just as the body of Christ local, but the body of Christ international. We're not very coordinated as the body of Christ today. Most families, most marriages aren't even very coordinated these days. You know how many people want to adopt? Well, there's one spouse that wants to adopt. The other one's totally set against it. That's the same thing with you know, us as the church. We don't have the, the ability to coordinate very well anymore. We need the Spirit of God to break through the crust of so much of our American individualism so that we can learn how to serve one another's calling. And if someone is going to adopt, I tell you what, it's a big burden. And we, instead of just rising up when someone is, having, is pregnant with child, which is a wonderful thing. You know, we have parties for them. We give gifts to them. But when someone's adopting, they oftentimes fall under the radar. We're getting more sensitive as the body of Christ. Which is like, well, they're adopting. That's their choice. Well, isn't pregnancy sort of similar to that? Well, pregnancy is more of a joyous, beautiful thing. Adoption is just sort of a serious, somber thing. I mean, you know, we need to help that child. Adoption is a taste of heaven on earth. It is. I've gone through it twice. I can speak from personal experience. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And the reward is not for the child. That's what's funny. You're thinking, oh, we'll do this for the child. Guess who gets the greater blessing? As far as I'm concerned, I've never been in the child's spot. So it's arguable, obviously. I'm convinced that the parents, the family, gets the blessing. It's like bringing a nuclear-sized blessing into your home. And it just explodes. Big smiles everywhere. Adoption is a beautiful, beautiful thing. The Band of Rescuers. And here was the title. Recognizing Royalty. I had a discussion with Sandy before we officially uh, decided on the Band of uh, Rescuers. And we decided, you know, because I said, is recognizing royalty, does it have... And she goes, I understand it. I don't know if anyone else is going to just understand. We have to explain it. In other words, if you've seen the message Depraved Indifference, which we're going to show in the middle of this this, uh, sermon today. We're going to show Depraved Indifference. Just stick it right in the middle of it. Basically, it's saying that God has a caste system. And we're like, how horrible. But it's not a caste system like the caste system in this world. This world is all about those that have power, have money, have position, and we esteem them. We curry their favor. We cater to them. Oh, you need something? I'm here to help. And God says, you know who I'm here to help? I'm not trying to curry the favor of the wealthy. I'm here to curry the favor and to rescue the weak. This is God's system. 
And so oftentimes, we look out and when we say royalty, we look for those that the world would esteem. And if we go to God and we say, God, who's your royalty? Who are the princes on this earth that you would say, go and serve? And it's the lowly, it's the weak, it's the orphan, it's the widow. It's God's kingdom pattern. Recognizing royalty, Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And the king shall answer. This is very interesting because it's in this story, you have a king. So we're talking about royalty here. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now who is speaking? The king. When you serve the least, you're serving the most royal. You serve the royal. You serve and wash the feet of Jesus. And every single one of us wants to serve Jesus. We want to bless Jesus. And Jesus says, I just told you how. You have eyes to see the weak, the vulnerable, the helpless, those that do not have an advocate. That's where God's heart is aimed. And when we follow his eyes and his gaze, and we look where he's looking, he's not looking where the rest of the world is looking. The world is looking at the famous, the popular, who makes it on the front of People magazine. Not the ones that God is interested in looking at. I don't know what God's version of People magazine would look like. It would be sort of interesting to read it. All the ones that are overlooked. And he says, this, these are the ones we want to talk about. We want to explore their, their circumstances so that we can do something about it. Hudson's solution. Hudson didn't know he was going to be in this message a few times. Look at the date on this. September 16, 2008. So what was Hudson? About three and a half Three and a half years old, Hudson found out about orphans for the first time. And so what I did, I, I, had a, I wrote a few different things. This is one of them. I think this was for a Moody. I used to have a Moody broadcast. Uh, it's like a three-minute commentary. And I did it for a year and then realized this is very difficult to keep up, a three-minute commentary. Uh, and so I said, I have you know, other things I need to get to. So the Moody commentary days went uh, to the wayside. This is one of my moody commentaries, and then I have another one a little later, but they're, they're very precious. And what they do is they give you a little insight into the child mind on this matter. You see, when it comes to the needy around us, you know that we oftentimes complicate things? Why? So that we can excuse ourselves. You know, a child doesn't complicate things, and as a result, it makes us as adults get rather uncomfortable. A child just looks at the need and says, well, why don't we do something about it? Well, when you grow up, you'll understand. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. You can't just do those things. And a child says, why not? Well, uh, uh, uh. Hudson's solution. Hudson, our little three-and-a-half-year-old boy, heard Leslie and I talking about orphans in Haiti the other day. We were working on a plan to go down there and visit, and we were hoping to bring Hudson. So he started asking questions. What's an orphan, Mommy? What made them an orphan, Daddy? Can we bring them back here and have them live with us? I've been deeply moved over these past couple days watching Hudson's childlike passion unfold for these precious children in Haiti. He is so startled by the reality that there are children in this world that don't have a mommy and a daddy. And he desperately wants to share his personal mommy and daddy with these little ones. Last night he declared, we need to make rooms for, room for these orphans, Daddy. And he set up beds for orphans all throughout our house. Each bed consisted of a blanket, a pillow, and a stuffed animal donated from Hudson's personal collection. I walked into my bedroom last night, and there on the floor was one of Hudson's baby blankets, along with a pillow and Hudson's favorite stuffed animal doggy. He was willing to give up his very best for this little orphan he didn't yet even know. As I was putting him to bed last night, I observed three different orphan beds neatly arranged upon the floor of his room. It was amazing to see the personal sacrifice he is willing to endure to help these orphans. To him, there is simply no question about it. If little orphans need homes, then look no further than our home. If little orphans need a mommy and a daddy, then why not take the perfectly good mommy and daddy in our home and make them the mommy and daddy to a whole bunch more? Hudson has challenged me to rethink my approach to this orphan crisis. He is willing to give up everything precious in his life to see these little ones helped. His best stuffed animals are given to the cause. His personal mommy and daddy are thrown into the kitty. And every extra square foot within his tiny room is offered up for the sake of the fatherless. 
As I tucked him in last night, Hudson said, know what, Daddy? I said, what, Snuggle Bunny? His left eyebrow raised as if an amazing idea was finding wings within his mind. Brace yourself for this one, guys. And he said, if we bring these orphans into our family, then they won't be orphans anymore. May we all regain the simplicity of a child in order to see what really must be done. For it's only the children that still cry. They feel the injustice. They know that something is out of whack when a little child is left to fend for themselves. Hudson is ready to fit three little orphans in his room. How many orphan beds do you have room for? The obvious solution is just too obvious. You see, it's obvious to a child. And that's hard for us as adults. Because we prefer to just live in an adult world where we can rationalize and justify everything away. You know, that's what we do in the adult world. We're famous for it. That's why the kingdom of heaven is only accessed through the little childlike mentality. Are you saying I need to actually give up my life? Yes. We'll, we'll think ourselves out of that so quickly as adults. But a child recognizes the truth in it. Well, Jesus bought you. Then he obviously should have you. Shh, don't say that. It's too obvious. Christianity is so obvious. And the actions of Christianity are so obvious. We all read the same Bible, but we come to adult conclusions. We make it a doctrinal debate instead of just saying, you know what, I think I'm actually supposed to do something here. Well, if you do, that'll change your life. It'll be inconvenient. Yeah. That's why I remember my working title, Embracing the Inconvenient. It is inconvenient. The cross is inconvenient to your self-centered existence. It is. I'm not really sorry to break that to you. That's love that breaks that to you. This is not necessarily easy for me either. I grew up in America. I was groomed to live my isolated life in suburbia. My dad was middle class. I know what I have coming to me. I'm well educated. I can, get, I can earn money. I can move out of the, the, the destitution and move up and be cleansed of all that. It's my right. And then God gets a hold of my life and says, give up your rights. He says, will you go where I'm going? What? Well, what do you mean by that? You see, you can go where Christ is going without living in the midst of squalor. It doesn't mean you have to live in squalor to be where Christ is. But you still need to be there. There still needs to be a readiness of soul and mind and body. Because it doesn't mean we have to go to Ethiopia to help people in need. Here in Windsor, there is still need that we can close off to and justify why we are not to be the answer to it. The obvious solution is just too obvious. I gave an illustration uh, the other day in the message that didn't end up getting recorded. It was called The Company of Heroes. And I talked about Corey Tenboom's nephew who found out that 100 Jewish babies in an orphanage were going to be exterminated by the Nazis the next day. Well, the solution is just too obvious. What would most of us do? That's just so sad. You know what he did? He and his buddies somehow found Nazi uniforms, dressed up as Nazis, went in the middle of the night and rescued 100 babies and put them in 100 Christian homes. Are we ready for that? I, this is an uncomfortable message for me. Not just you, but as the body of Christ, I can't carry the burden for 100 babies, which is why we oftentimes cower. I don't know what to do. But if we're a band of rescuers, if we are knit together and of one mind and one heart, then when the need comes, one of us sees it and calls on the other men and says, here's your uniform. Huh. All right, let's go. Boy, what adventure we would have. And then we have 100 babies to tend to. Babies are not easy. And I know there's a couple newborns in here. So the moms are very freshly aware of that. So are the dads. Babies take work. It's inconvenient if you look at it that way. But I tell you what, it's strength in the hand of a mighty man. 
Children change you. I am stronger for what I'm called to because of my kids. I do what I do not in spite of my kids. It's like, well, boy, just imagine what I could do if I didn't have kids. No, I wouldn't be half the man I am if I didn't have kids. It's what gives me strength. So this inconvenience or this seeming inconvenience is actually what supplies us the strength as Christians. But we must embrace it. I know it looks inconvenient, but it's actually that which is going to strengthen you for the task and for your calling. In Job 29, I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not I sought out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. Everything on that list. See, we esteem Job in that scene. It's like, wow, what a man, what a hero. Every single one of those things on that list are the things that we as Americans justify why someone else should deal with. And we see one man doing all of it. It's a little overwhelming reading Job 29. What do you do with that? The Job 29 report card. Ten heroic actions of a Christian. I want you to test yourself. I have to go through this process as well in my own soul. But I want to test ourselves. I want us to show our report card next to Job. The test of Job 29. It says, I delivered the poor that cried. Is that what we can say? I delivered the poor that cried. Now, I know this is speaking of Jesus. Job 29 is a foreshadow of the brave-hearted Jesus that is going to come. He enunciated this to the nth degree. He's the epitome of it. The quintessential picture of the gospel life fully lived out. We're not the full picture. But as a body, we can be. Because as an individual, we don't look too good. But what is a body? Can we say that we delivered the poor that cried? Well, we're getting closer. I delivered the fatherless. I delivered him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. The cause which I knew not, I sought out. I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. Here's Matthew 25, 40 again. Or Matthew 25. I'm used to saying 40. Matthew 25, 35. That's an interesting direction. I'm guessing it's 35 through 36 and then 40. For I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. The context for this even. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. The context is these things are the testing points for how we're relating to Jesus and how we're serving him. If they're absent in our life, we can say all these wonderful things to God. But this seems to be a proving ground for us. Rescuing the poor, by the way, delivering the widow, these are not the only things in Christianity. There's more to Christianity than just this. However, this seems to be an evidence of transformation. This seems to be an evidence of truly loving Jesus Christ. The Matthew 25 report card. Grade yourself before the judgment seat. And by the way, Matthew 25 is taking place at the judgment seat. He's dividing sheep from goats. So this isn't a small thing. This is literally intertwined with the judgment. How are we handling the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned? You know what most of us would say? I don't even know any. That's our answer. We don't even know any. You could say, well, how am I supposed to know some? Remember what Job, in Job 29, it said, the cause I knew not, I sought out. Jesus came to seek and save. There's something that we need, and I don't want us just to feel some weighty condemnation over our life. I want it to be conviction. Conviction offers life. Condemnation offers no hope. You're sunk. You're doomed. But conviction is the love of God expressed to our soul to awaken us to say, Okay, God, could you help me do that? 
there's more needed for us to begin to seek out. You know, we have these kids here, and I'm going to even mention some more needs too before we're done today. And in a sense, I'm trying to help us with the seeking. But there's going to be more needed for you. If there's something that is triggered within your soul through this time, you're going to need to seek it. I can't force you. God doesn't force you. He convicts, he warms, he inspires, he encourages, he exhorts. But you need to be willing. And some of us need to say, God, make me willing. The life we desire. I'm going to read something out of Isaiah 58. And I would summarize this as the life we all desire to have. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thy health shall spring forth speedily. And thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rear reward or thy rear guard. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. Then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. Yeah, I want that. You know, and some of you are saying, I didn't even understand any of that. Trust me, it's good. So here's our summary. Your light shall break forth as the morning. Your ministry, the effect of your life, literally will shine like a sun in this earth. Our health shall spring forth speedily. You tired of limping along in life? Your health springs forth. You have energy for the task. Your righteousness shall go before you. Your behavior literally develops a reputation that you represent the God of the universe. Your behavior exhibits Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You shall call and the Lord shall answer. You shall cry and he shall say, here I am. Your light shall rise in obscurity. Your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord shall guide you continually. The Lord shall satisfy your soul in drought. The Lord shall make fat your bones. I know many of you are like, yeah, 11. That's the one I'm after. (laughs) 12, you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Your children shall build the old waste places. You know, this is, this is an ache for many of us as, as Christian parents. I just want a heritage of godliness. I want my children to catch this vision. I want them to carry it. Look at this. Your children shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach. There's, there he goes, the repairer of the breach. You shall be called the restorer of paths to dwell in. Yeah, that's Jesus, but who lives inside of you? The one who is the restorer of the breach, and the rest- I'm sorry, the repairer of the breach, and the one who's the restorer of paths to dwell in. So we want this. This is the life that we all esteem. We've been wired to esteem that life. It's a life of health. It's a life of strength. It's a life that sin does not control. And so therefore, that which you do is blessed by the Almighty. Yeah, we want that. Context, context, context. See, what I just read to you is out of Isaiah 58, and I literally lifted out two big chunks. You may not have noticed it. I, did, I think I at least had a dot, dot, dot in there. I don't know if you noticed it. I'm going to now share with you what I lifted out. Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seize the naked that thou covers him and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh, then if thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, see what you see is that then, that's what it then enters into. Then you will be blessed. Then, if you do this, then... And it says, if thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then. We want the benefits of Christ Jesus without the life. We want the benefits of the cross without the inconvenience of it. 
We want Christianity on our terms, not on God's. But your health springs forth speedily if and when you walk in obedience to the living God. The if prior to the then. If you loose the bands of wickedness. If you undo the heavy burdens. If you let the oppressed go free. If you break every yoke. If you deal thy bread to the hungry. If you bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. If when thou seest the naked that you cover him. If you hide not yourself from your own family. If thou take away the yoke of oppression. If you take away the putting forth of the finger. If you take away the speaking of vanity. If you draw out your soul to the hungry. And if you satisfy the afflicted soul. Then. Now, this awakens an issue, the seeming contradiction. Are we saved by works or by grace? Why is it that so many Christian issues always come back to this? Because most of us excuse ourselves from everything that we just read because, like, well, I'm not saved by that. You're right. You're not saved by that. How are you saved? You're saved by the work of Jesus Christ upon that cross, his shed blood becoming your cloak of righteousness. That is the only means by which you can enter into the salvation of the Lord. However, the salvation of the Lord is more than just escaping hellfire. The salvation of the Lord involves being saved from your selfishness. And it's selfishness that keeps you from everything here. You see, you can possibly end up in heaven and not have any blessing in your life down here. Everything that we talked about in the ultimate life is found when you are changed by the cloak of righteousness brought into the throne room of grace and then God fills you with himself. And then how do you live? You live like Jesus. And what is the result? The Jesus result. You see, God is basically saying not that this is salvation. He's saying this is life abundant and I've made it available to you. You have salvation in Jesus. His work But then the result of his work is then he enters into us, and what does he do? He does more work. But it's his work in us. Our work is to believe. Our work is to yield and allow him to take these bodies, take our marriages, take our families, take our homes, and bring in the inconvenience. Our job is to let him. Our job is to believe him. It's not to do the work. We can't save the orphans. We can't save the widows. But we can make ourselves available for him to in and through us. Christianity. The work of the gospel is not what saves us. Jesus saves us. It's his rescue work that delivers our souls. So in other words, what I mean by the work is the work, the actual breaking yokes and bondages, delivering those that are oppressed. All sorts of secular people do that. There's all sorts of people riled up about the sex slave industry and human trafficking and child trafficking. All sorts of people. It's humanitarian. It's not Christian. The fact that you do that does not mean Christ is the center. The work of the gospel is not what saves us. Jesus saves us. It's his rescue work that delivers our soul. But the work of the gospel is the outflow of a life transformed and rescued by Jesus Christ. It is the outward evidence of a life indwelled by the great rescuer himself. Okay. Just use our imagination here. The great rescuer, the one that we're reading about in Job 29, ultimately, even though it was Job, it's also Jesus. And then we read about him in Isaiah 58. That great rescuer lives in you. How's he going to behave? Exactly as a rescuer would behave. He's going to be outward. He's going to be motivated to serve. Is he, do you think he's going to be saying, that's inconvenient? Well, do you think the cross was convenient to God? Do you think leaving his high throne and becoming a baby wasn't a bit inconvenient? Yes. But God knows the value of allowing inconvenience to be turned into a great demonstration of his glory. We embrace the inconvenient in order that God's glory would be made manifest in this earth. Discipleship 101. I'm going to give you a quick overview of how we do things at Ellerslie. We have four key themes that we develop in our discipleship process. There's a lot of themes in Christianity. We, we have four. The Word of God. If you don't have something to stand in, if you don't have something to reason from, discipleship doesn't work. You must know the nature of the Word of God, which is the same as the nature of God. It cannot lie. And when you gain an understanding of the Word of God, then you can approach it and reason from it and be strong in it. And then the Gospel. 
Now you're gonna look at this list and you're gonna see intercession is what I'm talking about. That's the rescue work. That's the standing in the, in the gap. That's the one that literally bears his chest and takes the arrows and the bullets. That's the type of work we're talking about in this message. However, it's not an initial work of discipleship. The gospel is the first work. You must be changed. You must be rescued by the love of God. You must be filled with the grace of God. You must be made strong before you have strength to give. Many of us esteem giving strength to this world around us, but we have none to give. Remember Peter when he came by the gate beautiful and the man asked for money? He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I do have, I give you. Peter had something. He didn't have silver and gold. That's what's ironic. Most of us think, yeah, you have to have these things to be able to help. No, you don't, obviously. Peter had God to give, but he was made strong to be poured out. Peter was a rescuer. He understood the foundation upon which he stood, the word of God, Jesus Christ, and he was filled with the grace of God. He yielded his body to it. He was filled with the power of almighty living. And then it, became to, it began to shower forth out of his pores. And that's what honor is. It's the behavior of heaven literally indwelling us and then pushing itself outward through our hands and our feet. We now live as Jesus would live. Not because we're capable of it, but because he's capable of doing it in and through us. And that's how Christianity works. And that's how discipleship works. But you must have the engine before the car will move. Then we're ready for intercession. We are ready to be poured out. We are ready for the inconvenience because we understand the gospel. We understand how it works and God will take those inconveniences or seeming inconveniences and turn them into great pictures of triumph. Depraved indifference. Now, many of you have probably seen this video. It's one of our Ellerslie short films. I tell you what, I showed it yesterday at a men's conference. Oh, I don't see it very often and it deeply impacted me. It has a little treasure in it that is hard to articulate, but this little short video just seems to be edited down and says it very clearly. And I'd just like, even if you've seen it before, I'd like us to be struck by it afresh. All right? exactly backwards in the caste system this world naturally creates. This world applauds and esteems the wealthy and the powerful and the privileged and the talented. That's not how God's system works. Jesus came and he proved it. He took the lowest spot and he was God. The bigger you get in the kingdom of heaven, the lower position you take. The special ones in God's kingdom are the weak ones. The ones who can't fight for themselves, the ones who can't speak for themselves, the ones that don't have someone to feed them, the ones that don't have someone to protect them. And Jesus says, those are the prized ones. And you treat them as the royalty here on earth. And the way you treat them is ultimately the way you're treating me. What you do under the least of these is how you're ultimately treating your God. Christianity is taking what has been purchased by the cross, the behavior of heaven, nature of Jesus Christ, and transplanted it into the heart of men and women down here on earth so that they behave not like this world, but like heaven. And so when this world sees them, they're different. There is something odd about them. They are from another realm. What does it look like? It's noble. It's brave. It's courageous. It's selfless. It is willing to spend itself for the weak. I was doing some study on Liberia. If you want to be disturbed, start studying Liberia. This four-year-old boy who's sitting on the side of the road, no one to comfort, no one to take him in, no shelter, no food, nothing. So in the middle of that night, I wake up. And it's like God had already deposited a question. It was waiting to meet me when I popped awake in the middle of the night, two in the morning. I had this picture of this little boy in Liberia in front of me. And God asked me a question. What if that was Hudson, my four-year-old? Eric, what if that was Hudson? Uh, 
You don't mess with a father's heart. What if that was Hudson? If my boy was on the side of a road across the world from me, suffering, totally alone, not knowing what's happening, he's not old enough to comprehend this. He's abandoned. He has no one to fight for his cause, no one to give him a voice. He doesn't even know how to articulate his circumstances. He's hungry and no one's feeding him. He's starving to death. If my son is in that situation, stick a concrete wall in front of me and I claw it through with my bare hands. This is my son we're talking about. And if I couldn't get there, I would call up every friend I have. And I would say, I have a son over in Liberia. You call yourself my friend. I need you to get on a plane. And I need you to get to him. I'll give you the coordinates. I'll do whatever it takes. But I need you to get to my son and be a father to him. God's response. Eric, that's my Hudson. That is my Hudson. And he's looking to us. And he's saying, I'm calling up everyone I know. Everyone on my list that calls himself by my name, that says they're a friend of God. And I'm saying, my son is over in Liberia. Are you willing to get on the plane and get to him? We have a cause to see it and it's when we finally acknowledge the fact that something is wrong with us not with the world out there if we start with this little group here and we say god you need to fix this i suffer from depraved indifference and so do you oh we care it's not that that doesn't move us at some level to hear about this little child over in library we care but we can go home tonight and sleep just fine is that it's because there's an indifference to that life and it's naturally born within us that that life isn't affecting us it's not in our backyard we're not related to it it's someone else's issue in fact we start quoting scriptures about god being a father of the fatherless we're like thank you god that you're a father of that child he says uh, remember you call yourself my body i'm not there except through you your hands eric those are my hands your feet those are my feet that heart, it's my heart. And if it's not beating, my heart's not beating on this earth anymore. I work through my body. I'm a father of the fatherless through my body. I rescue the weak and the vulnerable through you. And if you're not doing it, no one is. There is a solution for our disease, which is known as sin. And it's Jesus Christ. There's a solution for these dying children. It's Jesus Christ might sound overly simplistic that's it that is the solution because jesus christ will change a man like eric ludy into a man that feels what jesus christ is feeling and he cannot stay in suburbia usa anymore and do nothing heroes are made because they are moved not in their head but in their heart you have to be moved at such a level where you will shed blood. Jesus Christ was moved for God so loved the world that he gave. And that son that was given suffered and died. For what? For the cause that is being laid before us tonight. It wasn't head knowledge about the disaster taking place in this world. It was life abandonment unto the cause of those that are dying, unto the eternal souls that are around us. Do we care at the level God cares? Do we carry a burden? When we go home tonight, will we grieve over the fact that those children are God's children? And he is longing for an advocate to stand up and say, I'm willing, God, to fight for what is yours. I'm willing, God, burden me. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, you know what he was there for? He was there for life. He was burdened with the weight of it all for life. And he was willing to sweat great droplets of blood. Are we? For our king and his glory, we will rescue these little ones.
version of the video. It's like low resolution and the words are off, but I hope that nothing was robbed uh, in the message being conveyed. We suffer from depraved indifference. Sometimes it takes us a bit to acknowledge it. But there is a lack of something in our own souls for those that God cares about. 150,000, at least estimated 150,000 people are dying and going to hell daily. And to be honest, most of us don't care. It's not that intellectually we don't care. If you asked us, do we care, we'd say yes. But we don't care. Because caring is evidenced in behavior. And it's not just evidenced in a right answer. And our behavior demonstrates often that we are cold in our heart towards those that are without what we have found. Being made strong to be poured out. I believe that many of you in here have a strength that is rare in this generation. You have something to give. However, when it comes to some of these issues, what do we think? Someone else is supposed to do that. I'm not called to that. If the people in this room are not the ones called to it, I would love to see the group of people that is. Lord Jesus, bring them here. May they put us to shame. We have been given much, and much is expected of us. We've been given strength not so that we can just hole up and be comfortable, so that we can give that strength. The appropriate use of strength, ordered to both win the day and protect the weak. In every military operation, there is order and there is division made amongst that order so that you will be effective in battle. We have an advanced or a vanguard. And you'll see the word van in the word advanced. A vanguard is a leading guard. It's the front lines. And they are specially skilled men that will lead the troops into battle. It's a very difficult position and very significant. And then you have the main or middle guard. The girth and most of the operation. Most soldiers fall into the main or the middle guard. It's equally important. If you lose the middle, well, you lose the battle. And the rear guard, those that protect the backside. Those that protect, in spiritual terminology, the rear guard is meant to protect those that are weak. It was the slow ones. When, they were, when the Israelites were moving through the wilderness, it was the slow ones. It was the aged. It were the young children that would be nipped off and killed by the Amalekites. And they were the slow ones. And so God established his rear guard. Those that would protect the weak. God is our rear guard. It's a behavior attribute of God. And so the other day, I, well, I'll read this scripture to you out of Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the speechless. In the cause of all, you are, all who are appointed to die, open your mouth. Judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy. That's the rear guard. It's those that take up the cause and take up the fight for those the enemy is attempting to take out. The enemy is not stupid. We sometimes treat him as if he does not understand how things work. He knows exactly how things work. He knows how things work probably a lot better than most of us in this room, if not all of us. And he goes after. His great specialty is destroying the weak. He wants to take as many souls with him into that hellfire as he can. And he's going to go after the easiest the easiest prey is always the way the roaring lion works. When the wildebeests are passing through the savannah and the sleepy old tired lion, who does he go after? He goes after the slowest and the weakest. It's easy food. Know your enemy and then know where you must stand. He's looking at the weak wildebeest, so where do you go? To the weak wildebeest. You want to enter into an engagement with the enemy? You know where he's going. 163 million orphans. 27 million human slaves. You know who most of those are? Little girls. Little girls, children. Widows. Hmm. You starting to see a parallel here? Weakness. They are more vulnerable. 
They are either young or elderly. They do not have the strength for battle the same way that the rest of us do. We are commissioned by our God to take up the rear guard. Each one of us functions as a vanguard at certain levels and as a middle guard and as a rear guard, every single one of us. However, we also have position in the body of Christ. In our families, we have different roles that we play. And some of us specialize and spend the majority of our time in the vanguard or in the middle guard or in the rear guard. Some people, it's literally their entire calling and their entire commission to spend themselves in the slums. And they will. They are the rear guard, formally speaking. But every single one of us has a rear guard obligation. And there's also something historically known as the lifeguard. And this isn't the guy that twirls his uh, little whistle around uh, next to a pool. This is the body of select troops whose duty is to defend the person of a prince or other singularly valuable persons. I would love for us to be defined as that lifeguard here. A specially trained battalion of special forces soldiers that when there's a high need, God can always turn to this body. He says, I have a special one. And we say, we'll take it. I don't know if I can say to God that we're ready for that. I don't know that I can say to God that I'm ready for that. However, let's catch the vision and allow God to grow us up unto it. My children, you know, little children see things they want to be and they want to grow up to become it. I sort of feel like that's where we're at right now. You know, I carried my dad's briefcase and stuck my feet into his big, oversized uh, wingtip shoes, put on his suit coat jacket, you know, hung down to the floor, and I wanted to grow up, and I wanted to grow up quick. You can't grow up any quicker than you grow up. Growing up just takes time. You can't rush it. However, you can catch a vision. You can be trained all along in that journey to become that which you esteem. I want to be a great man. That does not mean that the definition of my life today is complete. It does not mean I'm done. We as a church of Jesus Christ need not carry the undue weight of condemnation saying, you're not there? Hey, we're throwing you out. That's not how God works. He says, you're a toddler right now. I understand that. But I want to give you a vision of what to grow up into. Some of us are in more of a position to be able to respond to this message practically and immediately. It helps if... You're married and have a home. We have students that are in a dorm room. A little awkward. They don't have any money. A little strange. You know, they're going to start pursuing the adoption of a child. It's difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it's far more challenging. So how do we work together as the body? Remember the message? The band of rescuers. This isn't just about each one of us as individuals saying, well, I don't care what all the rest of them do. I have to do it. It is that. But then it's all of us saying, how can I help what you're doing? How can I serve you? Now, that's just the body of Christ. We're not the most well-coordinated for that right now, and I'd be the first one to admit that. However, I want to lay it out before us and say, I want that. And I want to ask God to build us into that. The first sermon on this stage, I think it took place right here. You know who was the first person to give a sermon on this stage? Little Hudson. And his sermon, I don't have it written down here, See if I can remember it. Did you know that God wants us to help the orphans? He prepared for it. He walked, you know, sort of like Daddy does. He walked back and forth pacing. And then he told Annie, and I don't remember who else Annie was with, and he had him sit down right here. And then he said, did you know God wants us to rescue orphans? Was that what it was, Hudson? Yeah. Did you know that God wants us to rescue orphans? And then you sang a song? That's very appropriate. Well done. That's quite a good first service for Ellerslie. Don't you think that fits us? It's not just orphans, but God wants us to rescue the orphan. And so ponder that for a second. So then we say, God, how do you prepare me to do that? And he says, well, let's get to work. And that's what discipleship is. And that's what we do here at Ellerslie. You could say, well, we're not all just going out and rescuing orphans. Well, that isn't, that's because we need to be trained to be strong. What's the good of inviting an orphan into a family that stinks, where the marriage is rotting and the family is falling apart? You get first things first together, and guess what? That orphan comes into strength and finds life. That's what we need to do. 
So yes, we're maybe miles away from being able to handle 163 million. But technically, that isn't our job. Our job is the ones that God assigns us to. He's responsible for 163. We just simply say, God, show us what part of that we can serve and help. Spend us. I can't carry the weight for 163 million. I've tried at different times uh, along this journey. I'm going, we need to do it. We need to rescue 163. And God just sort of says, you know what? I appreciate your valor, Eric. But you need to realize this isn't done by an individual. This is done by the body. We need the body. But each one of us can get riled. Each one of us can make ourselves available. It happens at the individual level, and then it must happen at the corporate Otherwise, I want you to realize this. I have been standing on the issue of orphans and orphan advocacy and orphan rescue for, it's been about five years now, maybe six. And guess what? The number of orphans in the world went up 20 million. Well, that's encouraging. I've been praying my heart out, and guess what? It went up 20 million. That's because it's not one. It's the body of Christ becoming the body of Christ. My commission is more than orphans. It's the glory of God. And the glory of God is not just revealed through the rescue of orphans. It's revealed through the manifold wisdom expressed only through the church being the church. And the church is the church in more than just rescuing orphans. It's in holding up the truth within a generation and not allowing it to fall in the streets. We are about more than rescuing the weak. However... We are about rescuing the weak. You know what kind of person I am? You know who said that? Hudson, do you know who said that? Little Hudson. Same age, this is the same moody uh, commentary series. Oh, this is good. I really like this. In fact, I'm thinking, I have more in this message, but I think I'm going to finish with this. You know what kind of person I am? My three-year-old little boy Hudson is at the ripe age for cute quotes. But what's fun is he's moving beyond the cute comments oriented around just the basic structure and facts about life. You know, like, Daddy, did you know that the sun doesn't snore when it sleeps? And he's entering philosophical territory where he's beginning to comment on right and wrong, equity and justice, mercy and the overall perceived value of life. Listen to the one he offered on Tuesday of this last week. He was dead serious walking through the grocery store and he stated matter-of-factly, you know what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who sees owies and fixes them. Then it was absolutely adorable to watch him become a doctor, build a doctor's office out of his bedroom, and set our little one-and-a-half-year-old girl, Harper, on the floor for a checkup. He was convinced she had an owie on her head that needed fixing, and she wasn't so sure he was correct. (laughs) I keep coming back to Hudson's grocery store announcement. You know what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who sees owies and fixes them. My little boy has begun to discern between three very distinct sorts of people. There are people that see owies, and fix them. There are people that see owies and don't fix them. And there are people that for some reason just can't see other people's owies and as a result, don't fix them. The question that keeps dancing through my head is, dear Lord, of which sort am I? I'm happy to say that there are times that I see an owie and like the good Samaritan man, I actively respond to fix it. However, I must admit that there have also been times when I've seen the owie and kept walking. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. And in the past couple years, in awakening to so many of the major owies that countless millions around the world are suffering from, I realize that in many ways I've also proven blind to owies, and as a result have done nothing to help fix them. In the book of Job, chapter 29, Job is describing himself, and in his description... And his description is rather amazing. In fact, I could almost say that in essence he is saying, you know what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who sees an owie and fixes it. Listen to Job. I was eyes to the blind and feet was eye to the lame. I was a father of the poor and the cause which I knew not I sought out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. That also sounds like someone else I know fairly well. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sees every owie and he has predetermined to comfort all of us that ache and fix whatever it is that ails our bodies and souls. Jesus never leaves an owie behind, and neither should we. If we are to carry his name and represent his manner and and method in this world, then owies must become our business. May we stand up in our homes, our businesses, our churches, and our neighborhoods today and shout, you know what kind of person I am? 
And then by the grace and empowerment of our God, demonstrate the answer in living color before them all. I'll just keep it on that screen. Some of us would just rather not see the owie. However, today you're being acquainted with the owie. I know owie's a little kid word, but as far as I'm concerned, the best way to hear this message is through the little kid lens because the little children see this more clearly than we as adults. There's an owie. You fix it. How could you walk by someone with an owie and not fix it, not help them? How heartless is that? It's a good point. This is hard. I remember seeing this little short clip of this, then it was staged. This man was wrestling with this young girl and she was screaming for help. And they were testing to see who would stop. And no one the entire day stopped. This girl is saying, help me, help me, he's hurting me, help me. And no one stopped. And they interviewed this one lady and they said, why didn't you stop? You, she heard it, she walked right by, went out of the way, looked back a little and then kept going. They stopped and asked her, said, why didn't you stop? Of course, how embarrassing is it to know that you were on video doing that? And she said, well, I guess... I thought someone else would do it. Someone else will deal with that. How many of us are walking right by it? We technically, we see the owie, but we're not the ones to deal with it. Who do you think is? You're the ones that are awakened to truth. You're the ones that see Jesus Christ. You're the ones with strength to give. There aren't that many out there that have that. You have the solution. We must learn as the body of Christ how to respond. And I realize there is complications that we as adults can think through and say, well, it's a little girl and a big man and I'm a young girl. What am I going to do? Come up and say, hey, buddy, back off. It's awkward. It's sort of like that one picture of the train passing through uh, Holland or I, I don't know if it was Germany. And I think it was Germany. In the time of the Holocaust, and the Jews are being carted away as cattle. And this church is there on a Sunday morning. And they're singing worship songs. And the Jews see a church. And they start screaming through the cattle car, waving their hands through the slats. And what does the church do? Turned up the volume of the pipe organ to drown out the sound. How many of us do that? And yet you could say, well, what am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Could you imagine? They're like, well, the Jews are crying for help. And so you run out of the church. What do you do, jump on the side of the train? Stop! What do you do, stand on the tracks? Get hit, mowed down? Well, that made a difference. This is how we think. We say, I can't do anything, but what if we as a church respond. We're a band of rescuers. I realize that as a singular family, the needs that are being pressed before us are overwhelming, but what if we as a church knew how to coordinate our limbs, knew how to coordinate this body? I say we can do something, and I say we can make a difference. I mean, obviously, as the great axiom goes, even if no one else stands, you must stand. And even one person can make a difference in this age and generation. Sometimes all you need is one David to stand up and take on the Goliath, and it frees the whole army. So you must be willing to be the one. But my encouragement and exhortation in this message is not to expect that only one of us will stand. I would like to seek a hundred percentile in the church of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us sticks our sword in the middle and says, I'm in. I don't know what I can do. I'm not a very talented person. I have no money. I don't even have a home. All I have is a dorm room. I'm in. I don't care how small the enemy has told you you are. I think in this battle, you're pretty big. And I think the enemy just doesn't want you to know it. We have something to give. We have something to offer. Let's allow God to prepare us to offer it. As we sing... 
I want us to be offering up our lives. As we sing, I want us to offer up our marriages. As we sing, I want us to offer up our homes. As we sing, I want us to offer up this church. I don't know what happens as a result. I can't forecast that. I know it's good. Even if it leads to difficulty, it's good. It's obedience. But let's sing as if we mean it. Let's worship our God and give him that which is due his name. It's our reasonable act of service. It's our reasonable act of worship to present our bodies a living sacrifice, present our families and our homes a sacrifice unto him. Say, God, you gave it to me. You've blessed me with this. You take it, you use it. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.